0: The Secret Cabinet This episode of The Secret Cabinet, bottomless, from Popes, Eunuchs, and Castrati, I had already translated into English as a guest episode for the History of the Papacy from A to Z History. So it may sound familiar to this or that listener. Anyways, here it is as episode 33 of The Secret Cabinet. The Secret Cabinet. Good evening and welcome to the History of the Papacy podcast. I'm Travis Dow, host and also translator of The Secret Cabinet podcast, a podcast that's originally in German, Das Kabinett. A secret cabinet is where all the museums and people would put all the artifacts that they didn't want the general public to see. And like the Vatican, some of the most famous secret cabinets are actually in Italy, like the Cabinetto Secreto in Naples. But there is something about popes in the secret cabinet. It's therefore very generous, but also a little bit naive, that Stephen Guerra agreed to allow me to guest host his show. So let's see how much damage I can do to Stephen Guerra's, perhaps formally, sterling reputation. Today's episode is entitled, Bottomless, from Eunuchs and Castrati. The original host of the show, Der Budla, who does the original in German, was recently in Rome, and among other things, also in the Vatican's secret archives. That's probably a story for another time, but a little spoiler, it does not look anything like all the Hollywood films where there's things to enlighten one, and it's not really that secret either. But even then, Rome has enough other secrets. Did you know, for instance, that in the middle of the Lateran Palace, the name Luther was carved right into the middle from a painting by Raphael? That supposedly happened in the Sacco di Roma in 1526, as the peasants under Charles V conquered Rome and plundered the papely palace. But I digress. In the Vatican Museum... There was once supposedly exhibited a special chair where on the sitting surface there was a big round hole. The so-called sedes stercoraria, one said that the the newly elected popes would have to sit on this chair and a cardinal would check underneath to manually double check that everything is on its proper place with the new papa then he should say the words habiat duos et bene pendentes he has two they hang well or for short just habiat this ritual was supposedly brought into place to avoid a second popes joanna now the thing about the popes is obviously a legend even if already martin luther had already heard of this rumor during his stay in rome in 1511 And as proof of this legend even calls out the street which leads from the vatican to the lateran palace at the time supposedly named via sacra now it was called vicus papessa to remind of the popes who had given birth at that spot during a procession and therefore had her cover blown and since then the street was never again used for procession and furthermore there was a plaque which is no longer there today with the inscription PPPPP for Petre pater patrum Papice proditu partum or Peter, father of fathers, exposed the lies of the Popes. Now the legend regarding the supposed Popes was widespread in the Middle Ages and for a long time was just taken for a given. Especially the Lutherans and Calvinists used this for their anti-Popes propaganda, But already in the 16th and 17th centuries, some historians were raising some serious doubts on the whole story. Especially David Blondel, a Protestant historian in the 17th century, who in his dissertation in 1647 came to the conclusion that the whole thing was just regarding a myth. Also, in the papal succession between Leo IV, who died in 855, and the ascension to the throne of Benedict III, didn't leave enough time where there was, like the legend wanted, to fit in another popess, Joanna, between the ascension. And also contemporary sources are completely silent about any such popess. Even those outside of the Vatican's influence, like in Byzantium. Now one can find in the Apostolic Library, which is, by the way, one door to the right of the secret archives. There we can find the work Liber Pontificalis, a compilation of all the popes from the 3rd to the 15th century, and there is also an entry for Papist Joanna. But this is clearly by a later hand. The oldest mention for any sort of female church leader doesn't exist until the 13th century by a Dominican named Jean de Mailly, who in the Chronicle of Metz puts this legend at 1099. From there on, it was taken up a couple of times especially through Martin of Opava, through his Chronicon Pontificum et Imperatorum, the story really gained traction. And it's his story where we also, for the first time, hear the name Joanna, actually Johanna, who came from Mainz. And then, in the 9th century, sat as the Holy See between Leo IV and Benedict III. But the whole thing seems a little bit more like a fairy tale. In fact, the street via Papessa wasn't used for processions because of that legend, but because it was so small, not because a popes had there given birth. The name, by the way, also doesn't come from the Latin word for popes, but from the noble family with the name Popes. And the inscription with all those Ps? That might have actually existed, but it would have gone all the way back to antiquity to the consecration of a Mithras priest whose name was Peter. By the way, all of the Mithras priests had the honorable title of pater patrum, and then PPP is the local abbreviation for propria pecunia posuit, which gives you enough peas. What about the chair, the sedes der Translated, it just means feces chair, where one interpretation instantly jumps to mind. It was probably just a toilet seat, which was then later connected to this legend. However, there was really a ritual where the Pope would sit on different chairs, So reports, 1406, the humanist Jacobo D'Angelo Descarparia about the ascension to the throne of Gregory XII. Namely, that the Pope had to sit on two holy chairs, sorry, I mean two chairs with holes in them, and disillusions, he writes, the idiot tells me crazy legends that one had touched him to double check that he was a man. And the different chairs also could have symbolized the hierarchical climb Something like from the Toilet Throne to the Holy Throne. But maybe the legend is also less crazy than Hakobo imagines because he was sure of himself that new popes were not handled to make sure that they were not women and yet the ritual really existed because they had to make sure that they were men? Wait, I'm, I'm confused. Anyways, according to biblical law, a priest could only be a whole proper man. No one who is emasculated or has his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. And therefore, since the earliest times, there was already a ban for churchly consecrated jobs for men who had castrated themselves willingly. And that was actually kind of a problem in the beginning of early Christendom because there was already some eccentric ascetics who through self-castration and self-mutilation wanted to present themselves as especially pious maybe also to make sure that one does not break their vow of celibacy. One of the greatest proponents of this self-castration was in the third century a man named Origen, who took the spot out of the New Testament from Matthew 19, 12, where it speaks of voluntarily not getting married to come closer to the kingdom of heaven. He interpreted this as a challenge to emasculate himself and had taken the drastic consequences Now, he did find many emulators, but supposedly regretted that extreme snip, I mean step, later in life, if he even did it at all, because even that is being re-questioned by today's research. The Carthaginian church father Tertullian believed even that Jesus and Paul had been castrated, were spadones, and at least in the case of Paul, literally. In the Byzantium Empire, eunuchs were on the other side much sought after. Because on account of their inherently undangerousness, the word eunuch comes from the same, basically the guards of the bed of your wife, and then later by the Ottomans, use them as the same reasons for the guards of their harems. From the Greek, oine and ekhein, guard and to fear, because there was a fear that you would try to sneak in your own offspring into the succession, and therefore threaten the whole dynasty. In the Byzantium Empire, eunuchs could therefore get to quite a high rank, in the administration, as also in the military. Even in the Norman kingdom of Sicily, eunuchs had a role as bureaucrats in the 12th century, and even to such things as ministers in the government. But back to this holy chair, because after one had been trying for centuries to keep eunuchs out of the church, it was of all people the popes that brought them back, as singers. In Byzantium, eunuchs were already valued in the late antiquity, because they could reach that high octave and in the 16th century Italy they brought them back because despite the the ban on female singing voices in church choirs according to Paul it was mulier taciet in ecclesia women are to be silent in churches but one also wanted to be able to reach that pitch in the music especially in the Sistine choir in which at least since the middle of the 16th century the latest 1588 castrati were already singing The method to get that sort of singer were extremely merciless. Thousands of boys in the age from about eight years old who had pretty singing voices, some of them who were basically literally bought from their parents, had their puberty stolen from them by a pretty radically surgical procedure. This was usually done by one of the healing bath attendants who would, with just a light anesthetic, would cut into the scrotum enough to just sever the tubing And the whole thing would then shrivel over time. Many didn't even survive in the time before penicillin because of the questionably sterile operations methods and therefore just infection cost many of their lives. And even then only very few ever saw a stage career and all of those that didn't make the top tier voices were specialed out and either had to make their living in the markets or through prostitution. It's estimated that beginning of the 18th century, there was around 4,000 boys a year that were castrated. But the best castrati who got their breakthrough enjoyed a life like rock stars. They toured all corners of Europe and were found in all the opera houses. They even had a lot of admirers, male and female, that just like today's teeny boppers, became hysteric at concerts. They sent enough gifts and love letters to cover them with and even fainted in concerts. And they always wanted more because castration didn't always mean the end of your libido and ability to have an erection. And it was also kind of treasured that they, because they didn't go through puberty, they had these sort of feminine qualities about them. Especially the ladies of the high society chose castrati for their affairs. After all, the danger of an unwanted pregnancy didn't exist. And it was also thought that Castrati, because of a lesser ability to be aroused, would have more stamina and therefore prove themselves as quite the selfless lovers who really just concentrated on the needs of the woman. At least that's what an anonymous fan of the famous Farinelli said regarding his 1734 visit to London. And in this poem, actually, she compares the local men who lose interest after a very short time whereas Farinelli would stand until the end. But not only the ladies liked the androgynous voyage of the castrati, even Casanova fell to the charm of the young singer Bellino. He crowded him in an inn in Ancona and even promised his mother a gold dublone if he could just look at his genitals. Bellino apparently didn't quite agree, but eventually Casanova did succeed in grabbing between his legs and surprisingly just found a penis prop. Because Bellino was, in truth, a woman named Teresa Lanti, who performed dressed as a man to get around the performance ban for women. Casanova, who we've done an episode on Bohemian, by the way, was always a man for the practical, instantly changed his tune and got what he wanted. The two became a couple, she became pregnant, and so he left her, supposedly because he didn't want to damage her career as a singer, or even as a castrati. That good man, Casanova. But then she just outed herself as a woman and continued her career in the now more open opera houses of, of Europe. Now, in the end of the 18th century, the taste for music slowly changed. In opera and choir music, uh, Castrati played less and less of a role. Until their downfall finally set in, 1878, Pope Leo forbid the order of new Castrati, Pius X ordered in 1903 that for the high voices, they would just now use boys. And the last castrato of the Sistine choir, Alessandro Moresci, who died 1922. Perhaps Moresci wasn't the best of his kind, but he was the only one to have his singing recorded for posterity. And what did that sound like? Well, like this.